wish everyone a good afternoon, uh, everyone here in the room on the UTA campus and to those joining the live stream online. I'm Lonnie Harrison, director of the Charles McDowell Center for Global Studies. And today on behalf of the McDowell Center, I'm privileged to introduce my colleague, Professor Brian Whitmore. Brian Whitmore is an assistant professor of practice at UTA's McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. Professor Whitmore is the founder and host of the Power Vertical podcast, internationally acclaimed podcast, which provides cutting edge analysis of Russian and post-Soviet affairs. You can listen to new episodes of the podcast every week on Fridays at powervertical.org or just about everywhere you stream podcasts. Before joining the faculty at UTA, Professor Whitmore was senior Russia analyst for Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty. And prior to that, worked as a foreign correspondent for the Boston Globe in Moscow and Prague. He has testified before the US Congress and European Parliament and has briefed officials on Russian affairs in US, Canadian, and various European governments, as well as NATO. His work has been featured in the Washington Post, The Atlantic, The New Republic, Foreign Policy, Newsweek, and other media outlets. He has appeared as a guest commentator on the BBC World Service, NPR, and other media. Since coming to UTA, he's featured regularly on the DFW NBC5 News. In fact, we'll be recording in studio with Brian Curtis uh, this evening for airing tonight at um, the 10 p.m. 10 PM news. Um, so today, Professor Whitmore is presenting his talk, The End of an Empire, Ukraine and the Final Stage of the Soviet Collapse. Join me in welcoming our guest, Brian Whitmore. Thank you, Lonnie, for a far kinder introduction than I probably deserve. And I want to thank everybody for coming here at lunchtime, uh, which is a, it's, it's, it's an honor that you're giving up your, your lunch hour to come and listen to me talk. Um, the, the theme, this, this, this talk is kind of a follow-up on a talk I gave in October here at UTA, um, uh, separated at birth, why Russia and Ukraine are different. Um, and it also kind of grows out of a hypothesis I kind of developed as this war was starting. Um, February 24th of last year, I, like most friends of Ukraine, was despondent. Um, I expected Russia to cut through Ukrainian armed forces like butter. Uh, I expected Kyiv to fall in a matter of weeks, if not days. Um, thankfully, I was wrong. Thankfully, everybody was wrong. Um, thankfully, everybody was wrong because um, very few people saw this coming. Very few people saw this coming. When you look at the, Ukra the Russian army and the Ukrainian army on paper, it's, it's no contest, right? It's no contest at all. It's like the Dallas Cowboys playing a junior high school football team, right? <laughs> but the thing about wars, spreadsheets don't fight wars. Lotus spreadsheets do not fight wars. Armies fight wars. Um, and armies are unpredictable. So as this war started, I began to become less despondent by the day and began to think, wow, Ukraine could actually win this thing, actually. About a week in, I was like, Ukraine could win this thing. And if Ukraine wins this thing, this is going to be momentous. Um, when this war was start started, I thought a couple of things. I thought either this is the beginning of the restoration of the Soviet Union, or this is the beginning of the final stage of the Soviet collapse. Soviet Union formally collapsed on December 25th, 1991. Um, I remember standing on Red Square, looking at the red, the, the hammer and sickle flag for the last time. Um, but the period, the, the, the generation since then, the 30 years since then, Russia really didn't relinquish its control of the former Soviet space, um, particularly Ukraine, which occupies a particular uh, important place in Russian mythology about its, it, its, its, its imperial, it, what it believes to be its imperial destiny. Um, and so what I think is happening now, as this war progresses, I think we are witnessing the final stage of the Soviet collapse. And what I'm going to do in the next 45 to 50 minutes or so, I hope that's, I have that much time, that's what I timed this for, is kind of take a closer look at that. So Russia's invasion of Ukraine in February 2022 came on the heels of a grim anniversary. Um, from November of, 20, of 1921, in the middle of 1922, the Red Army was completing its conquest of Ukraine by defeating the remaining forces of the Ukrainian People's Army and other 
partisan forces. And this marked the end of a brief and tumultuous period of independence for not just Ukraine, but Belarus and some of the other former parts of the Russian Empire that were later incorporated into the into the USSR in, 20, in 1922. Um, Ukraine, though, people don't know this, was actually independent technically from the breakup of the Russian Empire at the end of, 20, of 1917 into 1918 until 20, 1922, when Ukraine was formally incorporated into the USSR following the conquest uh, of, of Kiev by the Red Army. Now this way, I call this a tumultuous period of independence because you really can't be considered, Ukraine can't really be considered in any real sense to be an independent state in this, in this four year period. Um, Kiev was occupied, I tried to count it, and Scott, you can correct me if I'm wrong about how many times Kiev was occupied between 1918 and 1922, 12 or 13 times roughly. Occupied by everything imaginable, white Russian forces, red Russian forces, Polish forces, Ukrainian nationalists. Uh, the Poles, actually, Professor Timothy Snyder told a funny story about this. Uh, when the Poles occupied Kiev in this period, they wanted to make it look like they had a lot more uh, forces than they did. And so they had men on horseback just basically parading down the Kishatik in the center of Kiev and making circles around, circles around and around and around. So it looked like there was this massive Polish army when it was really just a couple of dozen guys on horses, right? But the point is that Kiev was pretty much occupied by, by different forces that were fighting in the, uh, in, the, in the Russian Civil War at that period. It was ultimately conquered by the Red Army in late 1921, spelling the end of Ukraine's first very brief period attempting to be an independent state. And in December 1922, the Soviet Union was reestablished, including the, the Soviet Russia, the Russian Soviet Federated Socialist Republic, the Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic, the Belarusian Soviet Socialist Republic, and what was then called the Transcaucasian Soviet Socialist Republic, what is today Armenia, Georgia. So the Soviet Union, so the invasion, this long windup is there's a point to this. The invasion last February happened at the centenary or around the centenary of the founding of the USSR. And having watched Vladimir Putin my entire adult life, um, and I've seen more of him than I would care to, um, he's very conscious of things like this, of symbolism, of anniversaries. And I'm not inside Putin's head. Uh, inside Putin's head is a very dark place. You can't really see anything without a flashlight. Um, but I would hypothesize that he, he would have liked to have put the Soviet Union back together again, or at least part of it um, in the centenary year. Uh, certainly the Ukrainian part of it in the centenary year. Now, 1922 and 2022 are of course very different. In 1922, the world wasn't watching the way it was in 2022. Um, in 1922, the West wasn't as cohesive as the West is in 2022. Um, in 1922, the world wasn't as integrated and interdependent as it was in 2022. There was obviously no internet in 1922 and no social media and no ways to do crowdsourcing to save Ukraine from the Red Army in 1922. Ukraine didn't become a cause celebre in 1922. Most people in the world didn't know what Ukraine was in 1922. That's not the case. We didn't have Ukrainian flags flying in Washington, D.C. and in, in Texas and every other part of this country that I've visited or every other part of Europe that I've visited. Um, in 1922, Ukraine had not been able to establish the very firm statehood that it had established by 1922. We're looking at four years of tumultuous independence as opposed to 31 years of relatively stable independence. Right? So by the time Russia reinvaded this year or last year, Ukraine had already been a, a, an independent country for an entire generation. There are people, if you were born on the Ukrainian, when Ukrainian, when Ukrainian uh, independence day, they voted for independence on December 1st, 1991, well, you'd be in your 30s now. You never knew this thing called the Soviet Union. You never knew what it was like to be ruled by Moscow. So these are some of the this these are some of the different some of the reasons why this is this this time is going to be different. But I thought when the war started, I was like, oh shit, it's 1920, it's 1922 all over. That's what I was thinking that evening 
um, as I was watching in horror as, as Russia invaded Ukraine. Um, but in 1922, this and the political will of the Soviet authorities allowed the Russian Empire to revive itself in a new form in 1922, because I view the Soviet Union, and again, people can disagree about this, I view the Soviet Union as a revival of the Russian Empire under a different name. Um, now, the establishment of the USSR, which, I, as I said, was basically the restoration of the Russian Empire under a different name and a different ideology, was the exception to the trend of imperial collapse in Europe following the First World War. The First World War spelled the end of the Habsburg Empire, of Austria, of, of the Austro, it was then the Austro-Hungarian Empire. It set off the fall of the Ottoman Empire. It heralded the beginning of the end of the British Empire. It took the British Empire for decades fully collapsed, but it heralded the beginning of the end of the British Empire. Russia was the outlier. The Russian Empire briefly broke up, right? 1917, 1918, following the Bolshevik Revolution and World War II, the Russian Empire briefly broke up. Um, Ukraine and Belarus were briefly nominally independent, as was Georgia, um, as was, uh, was actually parts of what, are what is today Russia, like Tatarstan, was very briefly independent following the, uh, the, 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 the breakup of the Russian Empire. Um, but then it was put back together again. Russia was the outlier. After the First World War, that was the end of the age of empire for everybody but Russia. Everybody but Russia. Um, and central to this idea of empire, and I talked about this in the, the last lecture when, I looked at, when we looked at the history of Kiev and Rus, and I'll return to this briefly later in the lecture. But Ukraine is central to Russia's imperial idea. And I want to start here with a conversation I had with an advisor to Boris Yeltsin in, in the early 90s. I was working in, in Russia. And he was explaining to me that actually Yeltsin didn't really want to break up the Soviet Union. He, didn't, he wasn't saying this publicly because he was in this power struggle with Mikhail Gorbachev. Um, but he didn't really want to break up the Soviet Union. He wanted to keep something of the Slavic parts of it together. He wanted to keep Ukraine, Belarus, and Russia together. And when Ukraine voted on December 1st, 1991, to declare its independence from the USSR, that meant, according to Yeltsin's team, it was time to break it up. And I asked him, and in retrospect, my question was really naive, and I know that now, but I, I asked him, why? Why couldn't you keep something together with other republics that wanted to be part of the same thing? And he looked at me like I was a naive little boy, which I was. I was a little boy in my 30s. Had a lot more hair than photographic evidence to prove that. But he looked at me and said, Now, those of you that know Russian know what that means. For those of you that don't, what kind of a union could we have without Ukraine? This points to this central tenet of with Ukraine, Russia's an empire. Without Ukraine, it's not. And I have a, a quote up there on the screen from the, the late, great Zbigniew Brzezinski, uh, National Security Advisor to President Carter, renowned expert on this part of the world, um, somebody who I've, somebody whom I admire. Um, it could not be stressed enough that without, without Ukraine, Russia ceases to be an empire. But with Ukraine, suborned and subjugated, subordinated, Russia automatically becomes an empire. Now, when, when, when Dr. Brzezinski talks, I listen, um, even when he's talking from beyond the grave. He tragically passed away several years ago. Um, this is true, and this is why, again, I was despondent. I come back to this quote. This is the heart and soul of this lecture, this quote is. Um, I come back to this. Why was I so despondent on the evening? It was the nighttime of, uh, of, of February 24th of last year. And why am I so guardedly optimistic now? Because Ukraine surprised the world. Nobody saw this coming. Ukraine surprised the world. So this is this this points to the the the, the centrality of of Ukraine to 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 Russia's um, imperial ambitions. Um, now, just as Boris Yeltsin's team understood back in '91 that there was no point keeping the USSR together without Ukraine. So too, Vladimir Putin understood that Ukraine is the key to the revival of any 
Russian imperial project. And if Putin is anything, he is an imperialist. Putin's ideology is imperial. Um, that, that I am convinced of, again, following Putin my entire adult life. Um, and I just got a couple of examples here. Speaking to former U.S. President George W. Bush at the NATO summit in Bucharest, Romania in April 2008, something I, I covered as a, as, a, as a journalist for radio for Europe, Putin famously said to President Bush, Ukraine is not even a state. What is Ukraine? Part of its territory is in Eastern Europe, but another part, a considerable one, was a gift from us, meaning Russia. Um, in July of 2021, Putin published a 7,000 word article on the historical unity of Russia and Ukraine. I had to read it for professional reasons. Um, it was torturous. I wouldn't recommend it. I also have to watch Russian state television for professional reasons, and it is torturous. I wouldn't recommend either of these things for your mental health. Um, in fact, when I when I would would assign when I was a, an editor at Radio for Europe, I would occasionally assign reporters to watch Russian state television and, and report back on what they had heard. And I always was worried to have to get like approval for psychological counseling for them. Um, watching Russian state television is, is, is painful. Reading Putin's 7,000 word essay on Ukraine was painful, not just because it was poorly written, but it was filled with inaccuracies. Um, my, my students have a better understanding, I think, of Russian history than the president of Russia does, um, judging from what was written in this article. Among Putin's claims were that Ukraine is entirely a brainchild of the Soviet era and was to a large extent created at the expense of historical Russian lands. Now, every bit of propaganda has a kernel of truth, right? It's the best propaganda has a kernel of truth. But it is true that the current borders of what is today Ukraine were, were drawn in the Soviet period. That is true. Because Lenin understood that there was a strong sense of nationhood in Ukraine. And therefore, rather than making the Soviet Union this unitary state, he just, they, it was decided that you had to have a Ukrainian republic. And if you had a Ukrainian republic, you had to have a Transcaucasian republic, and you had to have a Belarusian republic. But the reason for this was the strong sense of national feeling that Ukrainians had. So it is true, Putin said, that the Ukraine, that, that the borders of what is today Ukraine were drawn in the Soviet period. That doesn't mean the sense, Ukrainian sense of nationhood was artificially created in the Soviet period. It was created a long time before that. I would argue it was created during the period of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, is what I would argue, that the strong sense of Ukrainian nationhood was, was, uh, was created. And it, 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 it evolved. Um, like much of Europe in the late 18th century, during the early 19th century, during as, as part of the Russian Empire. Um, so that was one of Putin's claims. The other was that today's Ukraine is little more than a Western project designed solely to undermine Russia and likens Ukraine's post-Soviet nation-building efforts to weapons of mass destruction. That's a direct quote. Um, and he concludes, true Ukrainian sovereignty is possible only in partnership with Russia. After all, we are one people. Um, that is also false. I'm not going to go over the entire lecture I gave back in October about why that is not the case. Um, but those are Putin's claims. But Putin is obsessed with Ukraine. He's, he's obsessed with it. And the reason is, my hypothesis, the reason for this is that Putin understands what Dr. Brzezinski said. With Ukraine, Russia's an empire. Without it, it's not. Therefore, Putin's obsessed with Resubjugating Ukraine. So now this is all, of course, based on some false mythology that I debunked. I, I hope I debunked successfully for all of you that were here back in October. Um, in my last public lecture at UTA, I explained why Russia and Ukraine were different and that the myths about Ukraine, quote unquote, always being part of Russia. Were, uh, were, were, were completely false. I mean, a quick review of this, um, just to say. Um, Russia, Ukraine, and Belarus all trace their origin stories back to something called Kievan Rus, which existed from the 10th to the 12th centuries. Um, Kievan Rus was neither Russian nor Ukrainian nor Belarusian because in the 10th and 11th century in medieval Europe, there, was, there, were no, there, were, there weren't concepts of nationhood yet. Nationhood is a modern concept. 
political loyalties then were determined by religion to your loyalty to a monarch or a, uh, a ruling house. But there was no concept of nationality. Kievan Rus was founded by Vikings. Um, the land which they founded, Kievan Rus, was populated by scattered Slavic tribes and Hazars, which are a nomadic term. Um, there were no Russians, there were no Ukrainians, there were no Belarusians. Those things all came later. Those things all came later. Um, and so I kind of bracket out the Kievan Rus, Rus period when I'm looking at the histories of these three nations. What's important to me is what happened after Kievan Rus. What happened after Kievan Rus, after it was broken up by the Mongol invasion, the western part of Kievan Rus, including Ukraine and Belarus, what is today Ukraine and what is today Belarus, became part of the Polish Lithuanian Commonwealth, which was the European superstate of that era. Right? I kind of consider it, and others, I'm not alone in this, and considering it the precursor to the European Union. Right? It was kind of an Eastern version of it, the, the, but the, um, the Polish Lithuanian Commonwealth encompassed all of what is today Poland, all of what is today Lithuania, all of what is today Belarus all of what is today Ukraine, all of what is today Latvia, some of what is today Estonia, and a little bit of what is today Russia, actually. We don't like to talk about that in Moscow. A little bit of what is, what is today Russia. Now, if you want to look at Ukraine's history, and I've kind of pointed this out, where was it? Well, I bracket out Kievan Rus, because there was, there, I, I, I kind of, there, there, was, there were no Ukrainians, there were no Russians there. It was part of the Grand Duchy of Lithuania for 329 years, the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth for 226 years, Russian Empire incorporated into the Russian Empire following the third partition of Poland in 1795 for 123 years. We had that brief chaotic period or independence between 18, 1918 and 22, four years. Soviet Union, 22 to 91, 69 years. And now post-Soviet post independent Ukraine, 31 years. So if you do the math here, I mean, you don't have to be a math you know, major or a math genius to like do the math here. Um, Ruled by Moscow, 192 years. Not ruled by Moscow, 590 years. Right, 590 years. So this kind of breaks. The, I, I, I don't. For me, this is not a question. Right? I don't even think it's a debatable thing. Um, there may be historians who disagree with me, but I do not think this is even debatable. Ukraine has some historic ties to Russia. It also has historic ties to Poland and historic ties to Lithuania. Right? Um, but it, it, it was not always part of Russia. There, and the reasons why this belief exists are complicated and could be the subject of an entire different lecture, um, which I'm not going to kind of get bogged down in that now. But suffice to say, the, the princes of the Grand Duchy of Muscovy, which later became the Tsardom of Rus, which later became the Russian Empire, they decided that, that it was their mission to reunite the lands of Kiev and Rus. Um, be kind of like if we Americans decided we're going to re reunite the lands of the former British Empire and like we're going to invade Canada tomorrow. Stupid idea. Um, <laughs> um, but again, this is this, this, this myth, which, which, which is widely believed, um, is, 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 um, is, is incorrect, and, but it's enforceable. The problem with this myth is it is enforceable. It was enforceable in 1921. This witness was made enforceable when Ukraine became part of the Soviet Union, which was, was, was another iteration of the Russian Empire. So just to, to kind of review this, and I also wanted to, to, to make this point. I, I love this slide. I totally love this slide. Um, this is Kiev in 996. This is Moscow. The Church, the St. Sophia's Cathedral. Right. Kiev in 1070, Moscow in 1070-1108-Moscow-1108-Right-Moscow-was-pretty-much-an-empty-field-it-um-it-um-it-first-appeared-I-I'm-not-sure-if-I-have-the-date-here-written-down-when-it-first-appeared-in-the-chronicles-um
from nomadic tribes that were that, that, that were roaming there and invading other parts of it. But it became rich. It was able to conquer the other parts of Kievan Rus that were in what is today Russia, Novgorod, Tver, and so on. Um, it, but it, this, this all happened later, right? This all happened later. Within the context of Kievan Rus, Moscow was nothing. It was this. Well, that was Kievan Rus. Um, just to kind of again to uh, to to by by, by way of, of myth busting here, um, the Grand Duchy of Moscow wasn't founded until 1263. Uh, it became the Tsardom of Russia in 1547, and later the Russian Empire in 1712. My point is here that that, that Russia, as we know it today, emerged later from this, but appropriated the legacy and history of Kievan Rus. And appropriated the legacy and history of Kiev and Rus for purposes of imperial expansion. Now, Ukrainian historians are not entirely innocent here. By the way, I feel the truth of Ukrainian historians, like some of them, like to monopolize the history of Kiev and Rus and argue that the Russians are basically descendants of the Mongol Tatar invaders, and that Ukraine is the only true inheritor of the legacy of Kiev and Rus. This is also wrong. Okay, this is also wrong, but this is not in the service imperial, of imperial expansion. This is in the service of basically defending the independence of what is today. Um, so everybody is is playing with this history. Um, the way I look at it is I bracket it up. Say, even Rus was the origin. It was the antecedent of three modern states: Russia, Belarus, and Ukraine. Um, but when it existed, there were no such thing as Russians, there was no such thing as Ukrainians, and there were no such things as, as Belarusians. Um, so, and another thing I, another point I want to return to from my previous lecture before I kind of get into why we're in the, the, this last stage of the Soviet Empire, right there, the Russian Empire now, is that how Ukraine and Russia developed after the collapse of the Soviet Union is important. Ukraine has had competitive elections. Every single election Ukraine has won. Every single every single election Ukraine has been free and fair. Every single. The one time they tried to diverge from this in 2004, millions of Ukrainians took to the streets and forced them to redo the election. Um, every single election has been free and fair. Um, civil society is in in Ukraine is vibrant. Um, and independent. In Russia, every election has been a rigged exercise in kabuki theater. And this is demonstrably true. No incumbent has ever lost an election. In Ukraine, only one incumbent won an election. Ukraine's not kind to its presidents. If you're president of Ukraine right now, like that guy is, who's a national, international rock star right now, I wouldn't be surprised if Ukrainians don't kick him out the next election. They, that's what they do. That's what they do. Um, maybe he'll be the exception. Maybe Zelensky will be the <clears throat> exception to this, uh, but I wouldn't be surprised if they kick him out. Only one incumbent, Leonid Kuchma in 1999, won re-election. Um, so we're in this, as we approach 2022, we are in this situation where Ukraine was increasingly seeing itself as a European state, as a democracy, and Russia was increasingly looking at Ukraine as something that's essential for the revival of its empire, right? Ukraine's a European nation that aspires to establish a functioning liberal democracy and join Western multilateral, multinational institutions. Ukraine, Russia views Ukraine as an essential element in its drive to reestablish an empire. And these two things are mutually exclusive. And the conflict between these two things came to a head. 2022 began. These two things were coming to a head. Something had to give as we entered 2022. Um, now, things were going on elsewhere in the former Soviet Union as, 20, as we went through 2021 and 2022. Um, Russia was reestablishing its control of other parts of the former Soviet Union, not through direct invasion, but through other means. Um, we had what I have dubbed and written about as the soft annexation of Belarus. The soft annexation of Belarus. Um, and I'm, I'm keeping an eye on the time here. We, we got until one? About 10 to. 
10 to, and I want to leave time for questions. Yeah, I want to basically, but I, I want to get through everything. I'm keeping an eye on the clock. Um, the soft annexation of Belarus, basically in 2020, Belarus had a flawed election. Alexander Lukashenko won, won re-election to his was it fifth term, if I'm not mistaken. Um, it was deeply flawed. Belarusians came out on the streets and protested. They're in the middle of lockdown. August 20th. Um, Lukashenko cracked down um, with the assistance of Russia. He became ostracized internationally as a result of this and was drawn deeply into Russia's embrace. Now, prior to this, Russia and Belarus had were, were engaged in this kind of kind of funny dance. Um, Lukashenko viewed the relationship as very transactional. If Russia paid him, he was happy to be Russia's ally, right? Um, but they had to pay him, and if they didn't pay him, he'd flirt with the West to get more money from from Putin. So you had Lukashenko was doing this little dance, um, and as 2020 approached, he was courting the West. As 2020 approached, he was courting the West. But after the crackdown, the brutal crackdown on the protests after August 2020, after the effective, uh, the diversion of that Ryanair flight from Athens to Vilnius, which had a Belarusian opposition figure on board, which was forced by Belarus to land in Minsk so that opposition figure could be arrested, effectively hijacking a European flight between two European capitals, um, after Lukashenko created a manufactured crisis on the Belarusian, Polish, and Belarusian Lithuanian border by shipping migrants from the Middle East to Belarus and then sending them across the border into Europe. Well, once this had happened, the door to the West was slammed shut for, for Lukashenko. And now Putin was taking advantage of this. And Putin was steadily expanding Russia's military, economic, and political footprint in Belarus. So even before Russia invaded Ukraine, Belarus was pretty much under thumb. Under Russia's um, so, so, so you had that. You had tightening control over Georgia. Um, Georgia, for a time, was moving west, was trying to get into NATO, and was trying to get into the European Union. But right now, Georgia is under the control of a Russian-supported oligarch by the name of Bidzina Ivanishvili, who made all his money in Russia, is tightly connected to Gazprom, um, and finances the ruling party. Um, so who's ruling Georgia you know, nominally? doesn't really matter because this unelected oligarch is effectively who is beholden to Moscow's run the country. Um, so, so, so you had that. You had also Russia tightening its control over Georgia through the use of proxies in the separatist republic of, uh, regions of Abkhazia and South Ossetia. Armenia was dependent upon Russia because it's dependent on Russia for its defense, primarily with regard to the Nagorno-Karabakh conflict, Azerbaijan. And in 2020, Putin helped Kazakh President Kasim Jomar Tokayev put down a popular uprising by sending 3,000 troops um, to, uh, to, 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 uh, to, to Kazakhstan. So as Russia was ready to invade Ukraine, the other pieces of the puzzle were falling in place. And again, why was I despondent in February 2022? Because I saw where all these puzzle pieces were, were, were moving, right? But Ukraine's the linchpin. Ukraine's the linchpin. And if Ukraine fell, I kind of think these dominoes were going to fall. Because the key to any Russian imperial project is Ukraine. Without Ukraine, Russia can't really be an empire. But as I said, Ukraine has been steadily moving away from Russia since independence in 1991. Ukraine has had, and those students who are in class this morning know this, that's had what I consider to be three revolutions, and I put that in quotation marks, since independence. Um, the first revolution took place in 1994, the summer of 1994, when Ukraine had an election. The incumbent president, Vladimir Kachuk, lost the election. And what do you think he did? He started screaming, fake news, stop the steal. No, he stepped down and let the victor take power. This had not happened in any place in the Soviet Union, in the former Soviet Union. Not even the Baltic states, which today are NATO members and EU members. Hadn't even happened in the Baltic states yet. Ukraine was first in 1994. They had, a, they had a free and fair election and a peaceful transfer of power. And as I talked about in the last lecture, that free and fair election followed a political crisis. 
political crisis in which there was a power struggle between the parliament and the president without centuries of constitutional law delineating what the Congress and the president can do. So you had a, you had a parliament saying I'm in charge and a president saying I'm in charge. Identical crisis in Russia at that same time, 93, 94. The way they solved the crisis in Russia, the president sent tanks to the parliament to blow it up. That's how they solved that. In Ukraine, they said, let's have early elections for both president and parliament. And they had early elections for both president and parliament. And the sitting president lost. And then he gracefully stepped aside. That's a revolution, right? That set Ukraine on this path that was very different from Russia from day one, right? The next, of course, was the 2004 Orange Revolution um, when the sitting president tried to rig an election to get his handpicked successor elected. Um, the people came out on the streets, protested, and forced a do-over of that election under more fair circumstances. And then finally, 2014, the Revolution of Dignity. Um, which, uh, which led to Russia's invasion of Ukraine uh, and annexation of Crimea later that year. So as 2022 began, Ukraine was in the process of severing most of, its Rus most of Russia's vectors. Um, Zelensky had shut down pro-Moscow television stations in Ukraine. Um, those are one main vector of influence. He arrested or uh, in charge with treason, Viktor Medvedchuk, was Ukrainian lawmaker and oligarch who is very, very close to Vladimir Putin and was one of the one of Putin's main um, proxies in Ukraine. Um, so as 2022 began, Ukraine was slipping away already, it was already gone, in my opinion. It was not going to willingly come back into Russia's sphere of influence. So Russia had to invade in order to stop these trends that were happening. Um, and again, once that happened, again, why was I despondent on the evening of February 24, 2022? I was despondent because I looked at the numbers and said, oh, my God. But guess what? Spreadsheets don't fight wars. Armies fight wars. And the Ukrainian army was much more motivated, much less corrupt. Um, and thanks to later Western support, much better quick. Thing is, people don't realize in the early days of the war, we weren't supplying them with all these arms. We weren't supplying them with HIMARS and, and Patriot missiles and, um, and, and F 16s and, and uh, Bradley fighting vehicles and Patriot missiles. We weren't. It was just them. But once they successfully defended Kiev, because Russia's initial goal, Russia's initial goal was decapitation. It was based on the initial U.S. invasion of Iraq. Shock and awe and decapitation. Take down the regime as fast as possible. Um, and I was, the way I was thinking about it when, when, the, when the war first started, I was like, okay, then we have to make sure the Ukrainians can do in the second phase of the war what the Iraqis did. <laughs> we got to make sure that, that, that Ukraine wins the partisan war, guerrilla war that's inevitably going to follow. That was everybody's thinking in Washington. Nobody saw that. Ukraine was going to stop that advance. Now, that light blue there is the initial advance, and the pink is what Russia still patrols. So the red and pink was the initial advance. No, they didn't get to Kiev. That light blue, Ukraine, Ukraine pushed them back. And this pink area is pretty much where the fighting is. Um, pretty much where the fighting is now. So Russia's initial goal of decapitation, regime change, and subjugation failed miserably. Um, Ukraine successfully de uh, defended Kiev. Ukraine also successfully drove Russia out of some strategically important regions captured earlier in the war, including Kharkiv in the northeast and Kherson in the southeast. Yeah, those little, little blue patches there. Um, and Russia has since revived its war aims to gain control of eastern Ukraine. Um, but that's not going well either. That's not going well either. Um, and at the moment, we're waiting, and I'm waiting, for an anticipated Ukraine spring offensive, which is going to come any, any day now. We're going to start. Um, what we're expecting is a Ukrainian push here, basically to cut Russian forces in half, a drive towards Melitopol or Mediupol, um, to cut Russian forces in half. And then, as has been described to me by retired U.S. General Ben Hodges, the former commander of U.S. Army Europe, then it's a math problem. Yeah. Then it's a math problem. Once you split those forces. Um, so this is why I, I'm, I'm optimistic about 
how this might end. Um, but what does this mean going forward? Do I have another slide here? Yes, I do. Great. Um, that's what I want. Yeah. Because what have we seen since this war started? Remember, I went through all these countries in the beginning and how Russia was gaining influence. Since the war has started, we see waning Russian influence in Georgia. Weeks ago, the Georgian parliament was poised to pass a law on so-called foreign agent registration, um, which means that any nonprofit in Georgia that gets any money from any foreign source, not just a state government foreign source, any money from any foreign source has to declare themselves a foreign agent and register and they claim this is modeled on the US law, which is complete nonsense. The FARA law, Foreign Agent Registration Act, says if I am a lobbying for any foreign government, I have directly lobbying the US government on behalf of any foreign government, even the Canadian government or the British government or allied government, it doesn't matter. Any foreign government, I have to register as a foreign agent. Completely reasonable, right? If I'm lobbying my government on behalf of foreign power, I should register. It, it, what it does not mean is that any US entity that gets any money from any foreign source, I mean, that would be like every university and every think tank and every nonprofit in the country would have to register as a foreign agent. It's ridiculous. It would effectively shut down. But the Georgian people would have none of this. And they went out on the streets and protested in numbers we haven't seen in ages. And they, the government backed down. The government backed down. And the Russians got, and this, this law was modeled on a law that, that, that Putin had the Russian state Duma pass. Uh, back in 20, cost me correctly if I'm wrong, 2014, 2015, right around that. It was modeled on the Russian law. They backed down. And after the government backed down, the Russian foreign ministry sent out a tweet saying, hey, Georgia, remember what happened to Ukraine in 2014? Implicitly threatening to invade. That's a sign of desperation. So we see waning influence in Georgia, waning Russian influence in Armenia. Um, when Armenia and Azerbaijan twice fought over Nagorno-Karabakh in 2020 and 2022, and Armenia lost a lot of territory to Azerbaijan, Russia did not defend them. Armenia's entire relationship with Russia is based on the fact that Russia provides the defense. And when Armenia needed Russia to defend them, Russia didn't, couldn't, or wouldn't. Not, not enough bandwidth, they were bogged down in Ukraine. Now Armenia is talking about leaving the Russian-led CSDO, Russian Security Treaty is openly saying that. The president of Armenia said, if Putin comes to Armenia, he will be arrested for war crimes. This is Russia's closest ally in the former Soviet states, Armenia, right? Armenians aren't anti-Russian. Armenians like Russians, actually. Um, Russian influence is waning in Moldova. Um, Maya Sandu, the president of Moldova, remarkable young woman. She used to work in the NGO sector. I remember going to conferences and sitting on panels with her. Now she's the president of Moldova. And she, you know, she, 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 she looks like, uh, you know, kind of like the nice young, young person. She is tough as nails. And she's kind of pushing out the Russian influence in Moldova. We have waning Russian influence in Kazakhstan. Remember, I talked about earlier how Putin basically saved the Kazakh president's bacon by sending 3,000 troops. Now Kazakhstan is kind of resisting uh, Russian control. The big question for me going forward is that. That's the one I'm going to watch. Um, because if... Russia's defeated in Ukraine. What happens in Belarus? Does Belarus become Putin's consolation prize? You already got a lot of military assets there on the ground. Russia and Belarus have done a record number of joint military exercises to the point where the constant rotation of Russian forces basically means a permanent Russian troop presence there. But Belarusians hate this war. Belarusians certainly have very warm feelings towards Ukrainians. They don't like the fact that their territory is being used to wage war against Ukraine. Um, Belarusian saboteurs have basically sabotaged train lines, um, preventing materials from getting to the front. Um, and I, I don't rule this out. I don't say I think it's likely, but I don't rule out in the event of a Russian defeat in Ukraine, we could see a free Belarus. I think we could see that. I, I don't, I'm not gonna predict it. I'm not gonna predict it. But I think if Russia is defeated in Ukraine, we will have a 1989. 1989, 1989 for, for my generation is a very meaningful year. Um, this is like the most optimistic year of my life. Um, this was the year when the revolutions of 1989, the Velvet Revolution in the Czech and, and the then Czechoslovakia, Poland got its freedom, Bulgaria, Romania, Albania, 
you had the spread of kind of democracy across former communist Eastern Europe. And that was the result of waning influence in Moscow, Moscow's inability to project imperial power. Mikhail Gorbachev, to his credits, unwillingness, and, and uh, he had no desire to project imperial power. Um, I think we could be in for something like that again in the event of a Ukrainian victory. So this is why, while I was despondent in February of a year ago, and I was originally going to give this lecture in February you know, for Cemetery's sake of the, the Texas ice storm ruined my plans. Um, so I'm giving it now in April, but for the sake of symmetry, I was going to make, you know, conclude by saying in February of this year, I'm a lot more optimistic than I was in February of last. And we're bumping up against the end. I know I'm, I'm yeah, you want to open it up for, for questions. Um, Scott's going to correct every historical error. <laughs> Actually, I don't, have, I don't have historical questions. I have sort of a, a larger strategic. Um, in this talk and the talk that you gave back in October, you earlier really focusing here on events that are transpiring in Eastern Europe. And you did so, obviously, given your background um, in reference to historical developments that occurred in both countries. But what, what's absent from this talk and was absent from the talk in October, I thought was sort of a larger picture as to what is going on from a geopolitical standpoint. This particular talk, I'm sorry, this is a little bit of a comment and then a question. Mm -hmm. Um, in this particular talk, you're discussing here the end of the Russian Empire and the importance of maintaining Ukraine. You put Brzezinski's sort of famous statement about the Russia and Ukraine. Uh, without Ukraine, Russia is not an empire. With Ukraine, Russia is an empire. Well, there are other things that are going on directly related to this conflict, um, and they involve the emergence of the Brits, the emergence of what is increasingly a multipolar world, and the increasing de-dollarization of a global exchange currency. There is a very strong argument, and I, I would disagree with you about your comments at the end of World War One. that Russia was the outlier, um, and it's sort of reforming an empire. The other empire that existed at the end of World War One is the United States Empire, mm -hmm. which expanded precipitously at the end of the Second, the second World War, thanks in no small part to Bretton Woods, and the establishment of the dollar as the world reserve currency. Mm -hmm. Without the dollar as the world reserve currency, the United States is not going to be and that is that is moving pace. Whether it will occur in years or months, it is clear that many countries, including countries that were central to America maintaining the dollar as the world reserve currency, specifically Saudi Arabia, are now moving closer in line with what the Russians and the Chinese are going to do. Are we witnessing the end of the Soviet Union as an empire, or are we witnessing the end of the United States? I don't think we're. I don't think those things are mutually exclusive. I take that those those in uh, in. in one at a time. I agree with you about the situation of the global south. And that is that could be the subject of an entire lecture. I struggled to get all this in to a 50-minute lecture, and I struggled to get all everything I got in in October in a 50-minute lecture. There is a good lecture to have, a good talk to have about the role of the global south. And about China's role in all of this with regard to the global south. Um, this has largely been Euro, Eurocentric. Western-centric, and I, I I I take that on board. That's that was intentionally so. Um, I think you have to take a look at these things in, in, in parts. Um, I would argue that the Western world has a lot of work to do in the global South, and the global South has a lot of reason to be resentful toward the Western world about this. I recently had conversations with an Indian diplomat, who's a good friend of mine in Washington, about this. He said, Brian, the way this is, we look at this is it's a it's 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 a fight among you Westerners. And we, this is not our fight. We're going to continue to buy oil from the Russians. You tell us we can't buy from the Iranians. You tell, you tell us we can't buy from the Venezuelans. We've got to buy from somebody, and it's going to be the Russians. Um, so we, th that to me says we have a lot of work to do in the global south. They now announced they're buying it. Yeah, and they're now and yeah, and your your point about de-dollarization is I don't think I think we might be getting a little ahead of our skis on this right now. Economists have told me as much. We're just a bit ahead of our skis on that. On, on the American empire, I, I prefer not to use the word empire because I think empire is when you are directly sub subjugating another nation. I would say American hegemony. American hegemony is the word I would use. Now that's semantics, but the semantics are important to me. Um, I, I, I kind of reject this kind of equating American hegemony with like classical imperialism in the sense that we, we saw the, the empires of Europe up until up until the, the, the Century. So I would, I would 
I'm not sure we're out of de-dollarization is as far along as you think. I'm getting different answers from different donors about that. Um, yeah, there's some troubling trends right now. Some troubling trends right now. I would also say be careful what you wish for if you wish for a multipolar world. There's a kind of scholar of international relations. Multipolar worlds are not stable. They're not stable though. I know, but they're not stable. The well, stable ones are not Last comment or first question. Do you have the, oh, oh, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll figure out, okay, ask, 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 ask my follow-up question after, 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 after the event. Okay, sure. Eric, sure. Um, so I'm curious about historical memory of Eastern Europeans, especially the generation of Eastern Europeans who were born after the breakup of the Soviet Union. Mm -hmm. So during the course of Soviet domination of Eastern Europe, of course, education was right but still, yeah. there were some memories of stuff like Ukrainian famine in the 20s and 30s. So how much does this generation of Eastern Europeans know about what it was like under Soviet? Depends what you mean by Eastern Europeans. Do you mean Czechs and Poles or Ukrainians and Belarus? Poles, Latvians. I mean, it's going to be different in different places. Well, what about Ukrainians? Ukrainians, well, in official Soviet education, the famine wasn't on. Right. Exactly. Um, <laughs> this, um, this happened, this was kept alive by diasporas, right? The famine wasn't on. Um, as far as Eastern Europe, there's a lot of interesting trends there. I used to live in the Czech Republic. Uh, I lived there for 17 years. And there was an interesting thing that I learned about Czech education is that they, high schools in the Czech Republic didn't teach any history after the Second World War. The reason being, the teachers were uncomfortable talking about what they did during communism. So you have now had, you know, the, the, you know, the Czech Republic has been you know, free of communism since 89. An entire generation now has gone to school without learning any of their history after the Second World War, without studying critically the communist period. Now think of other of us, we, we learned the Vietnam War and Watergate and all the ugly stuff that happened in the 70s and I was, Happening as a, but by the time I got to high school, we were already studying that as history. It happened when I was in junior high. <laughs> but the, 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 the Czechs and the Slovaks, and they, the, the, I didn't know this until I was told. But they just didn't, they didn't study history after the Second World War because the teachers were uncomfortable talking. Right? So it's different. It depends which Eastern Europeans you're you're talking about. So that that would be. But they, but the the memory is largely kept alive in Ukraine by the diaspora. On that note, we'll have to conclude. Uh, so join me in thanking our presenter, Remember to follow Power Vertical Podcast for more analysis. Thanks to everybody. I think Tim Cole did on last week. Actually. That's a good question.